Interested in healthcare? Well, here's a programme you might not want to miss. Hosted by long-time healthcare reporter Dan Gorenstein, Tradeoffs takes a close look at the costly, complicated and counterintuitive world of the US healthcare system and the policies that govern it. Tradeoffs digs into the weeds with experts who understand the data driving the policy trends while telling compelling stories of those impacted by those policies. In the words of the Tradeoffs team, there are no easy solutions for a troubled healthcare system, just Tradeoffs. You can find Tradeoffs wherever you listen to your podcasts. Boldly going where no science show has gone before. The Naked Scientists. Hello, welcome to this week's Naked Scientists, and that's with Helen Scales. Hello, Helen. Hello. With Dave Ansell. Hi, Dave. Hi, Chris. And I'm Chris Smith. Now, coming up this week, how a blue food dye could actually help to heal spinal cord injuries in the future. Also, how scientists have turned prawn shells into a new breed of high-efficiency catalytic converters that can help us to make biodiesel. And raindrops keep falling on my head. But how big are they? Well, scientists have made a big breakthrough in discovering what affects the distribution of sizes of raindrops. And that's all coming up, or should I say in the case of raindrops, coming down in just a second. Helen. Thanks, Chris. Also, this week, it's our science question and answer show. We'll be finding out if peeing on an electric fence or a live rail is likely to result in an electric shock. Sounds very painful to me. And does what a mother eats end up in her breast milk? Also, do animals like whales and dolphins get high blood pressure because they eat too much salt? Plus, we'll also be answering any questions you have on swine flu. Chris is our resident virologist, so he'll be happy to help out with any questions you might have. Dave. Thanks, Helen. And in this week's Kitchen Science, I've got a pretty cool party trick for you. All you need is a piece of string, a mug, a nut and a pencil. A nut? Peanut? A Brazil nut? nut, Walnut? Sort of M8, sort of normal kind of nut you put on a metal nut. Um, And I guarantee it will be impressive. Have a go. You're going to tell us what to do with that, presumably. So, nuts and bolts from our nutty professor. Thank you, Dave. If you'd like to get in touch with us here at The Naked Scientist, the email address is chris at thenakedscientist.com. The Naked Scientist podcast, powered by UK Fast, the UK's best hosting provider. On the web at ukfast.net. Now, first up this week to the subject of spinal cord injuries and also brainstem and brain injuries in general, strokes for example. They're pretty devastating because the brain has a limited ability to repair itself. But one of the major reasons that an injury to the spinal cord is so devastating is because when you do the injury, it's not just the lesion itself, the physical damage to the spinal cord that causes a lot of the disability and deficit that follows. In fact, what happens is that a lot of inflammation ensues and more damage is done because things swell up and because there is already a damage which damages other onward bits of the nervous system. So researchers have been looking at a way to try and restore or prevent this secondary damage. And a group of researchers at the University of Rochester, led by Macon Nedegaard, what they've got is a paper in the journal PNAS this week showing that a food colouring that's used to dye food blue, in fact this colouring is called Brilliant Blue G, and it's a relative of another food dye, which is called FD&C Blue Dye Number 1. Who would have believed it? But what you can do with this stuff is to significantly reduce the amount of this secondary damage that happens when there is damage to the nervous system. What this group of researchers have found in recent years is that the reason you get this secondary damage is that when part of the central nervous system is injured, you get a release of a family of chemicals called purines, including one called ATP, adenosine triphosphate, which is actually a big energy molecule. Cells use it to get energy. 
but when it comes out of cells, it locks onto a chemical docking station on the surface of other cells in the nervous system. And those chemical docking stations are called P2X7 receptors. And when these purines lock on, what they do is to open up a very big pore, like a channel, which is on the surface of the cell. And this lets lots of calcium go into cells, and it makes the cells get very, very excited. And they go into a cycle, a sort of vicious cycle, if you like, which is called excitotoxicity. And this ultimately kills the cell. So what this group of researchers did was to look at the structure of uh, these particular receptors and said, well, if we can block them and stop this happening, we should stop the damage to the cells. And they found that these blue food dyes, which are already approved for use in, in various industries, including putting them into food so we can put them in our bodies, they actually block these receptors very effectively. So they did some experiments on rats that had spinal cord injuries and they were able to reduce the amount of damage the animals got after the injury. They were able to speed up the rate at which the animals got back some of their function following a spinal injury and when they did studies on the actual tissue that had been injured by the injury uh, they found that the actual zone of damage was much, much smaller consistent with this actually working and blocking this secondary damage. If these um, dyes are actually having quite a strong drug effect on your body, um, on the nerve cells, do you actually want to be eating them? Well, the difference is that normally these food dyes would be present in low concentrations and they would also be taken in through the diet. So therefore, the amount that would actually penetrate the tissue would be very low. In these animals, they gave them the drug via an intravenous route at a much higher dose. You can also do it orally, but you need a very big dose. And then it does get all around your body. In fact, this blue dye, when they studied the nervous system, they found that lots of areas, including the eye, went blue because it was penetrating all the tissue. But there is obviously that risk of a side effect, but then it shouldn't be too severe compared with what you've got to gain. So it sounds like that could be a new way of researching this in the future and helping people with those terrible conditions. Well, you've heard about putting a tiger in your tank, but now how about putting a shrimp in your tank? It doesn't sound quite so impressive, does it? Put a prawn in your tank. (laughs) But uh, indeed... um, doesn't sound quite so impressive, but it's exactly what some scientists in China have been doing in an attempt to make biodiesel production more efficient. Jinjeng Cheng and colleagues from the Huazong Agriculture University in Wuhan have discovered that shrimp shells could be a great improvement on the catalysts that we're already using to try and convert natural oils, that's from crops like soya, sunflowers and rapeseed, into diesel that we can use in vehicles and use them to drive around. How does it work? What do they actually do? Well, traditionally, what, what the process that's going essentially is called trends transesterification and essentially it just means we're changing the chemical makeup of fatty acids in the seed oils to convert them into a usable fuel and normally to do that it takes a very long time it's not really a a reaction that takes place very readily so a catalyst is needed and traditionally that's some kind of strong acid or a base but the problem with those traditional catalysts is that they get used up you can't reuse them and it involves lots and lots of water actually to to sort of to use those types of catalysts so this new idea is to use shrimp shells Um, The good thing about them is that they can be reused and they don't need tonnes and tonnes of water because obviously that's another limited resource, something we've got to think about using. We can't just use it as if it's free and hugely abundant. And uh, and it does seem to work. It does seem to actually um, increase the rate of this reaction so you can create... um, this biofuel from these crops and it happens really quite efficiently. After three hours they converted 89% of a sample of canola oil into biodiesel and they, they point out, these guys point out that it's biodegradable. It's quite cheap because it's actually, these are a byproduct of the seafood industry. We've got shells that we throw off the seafood that we like to eat all the time. And it's quite interesting, I've actually got the paper here, if you had a look at the, a picture of this stuff that the, the shells are made of and it's mainly chitin, that stuff that our nails and, and hair is made of. But the structure of it inside the 
the the um, the shrimp shells is very granular. You can see it's yeah, it's almost like a, a kind of surface area. It's got a very big surface area. It's sort mm. of this grainy, um, porous structure, and that's how it's made in the shrimp. And so that's really good for a catalyst because you need a surface area for it to for the reaction to take place on. Really, so naturally, so it's they, looking they like a good sort of. burn these things partially to get them down to a sort of carbon skeleton of that. Presumably, that's right, le- leaving yeah. this very big surface mm-hmm. area. Exactly, that's essentially what they do, and it's quite a simple process. It doesn't take too much energy. It doesn't have to be heated up too much. Um, so you know maybe this could help in making biofuels a bit more efficient because obviously the biofuel debate rages on it's a very controversial thing as to whether we should be planting crops and making fuels out of them but it could be part of the debate on how to make um make make less carbon dioxide going into the atmosphere from our from our own vehicles thanks helen now in the 19th century scientists studied all sorts of odds and ends and one of the things they looked at was raindrop sizes some of them would go out and get a big piece of blotting paper put it outside during a rainstorm and then have a look at the size of different raindrops they found that whilst a few of the raindrops were above five millimeters across most of them were quite small less than a millimeter what was really really strange was that the same sort of heaviness of rain the same rate of rainfall this distribution was always the same so just explain what that means for a second so you've got the same range of raindrop sizes no matter how hard it's pelting so say a couple of percent of them would be five millimeters across 50 percent of them three millimeters across etc etc which sounds a bit counterintuitive doesn't it because you think when it rains really hard you'd expect that to be massive raindrops well the, the, the distribution did change between different rates of rain but for the same rate of rain whichever the shower shower you went under it would be the same you can have rain produced in all sorts of different ways different heights in the clouds and always this distribution was the same now people thought this might be because the big raindrops were hitting each other but people had done maths and discovered that they shouldn't hit each other there's not enough rain in the sky for them to hit each other enough for them to balance out now Manuel Vilmo at the old Marseille University has, might have worked out what's going on he saw an effect which you see in a diesel engine when you squirt droplets of fuel very very fast into air what happens is some of those droplets they flatten out as they go faster and faster and faster and eventually they get so flat they sort of turn into a parachute they sort of blow up into a bubble and they pop and he thought that the same thing might be happening with rain. It's actually an effect I've seen in a kitchen science experiment once. I was going to say, because when you were making rockets, <laughs> yeah, I was make- you made some fast footage. Yeah, I did a high-speed a- video of a um, water rocket. As Some of the droplets came down, and just before one of the last ones on the video hit the ground, it sort of blew up into this beautiful bubble and then popped. I, didn't, I thought this was weird, but I didn't think it had anything important about it. But apparently, um, according to Manuel, this is what he thinks is happening in rain. He's, he's done lots of experiments with it, and the distribution of drops you get from these exploits these poppings of these sort of parachutes is exactly what you see in rain. So the reason you get that normal distribution of raindrop sizes is because all the big ones fragment into slightly smaller ones. The slightly smaller ones may then fragment into even smaller ones, and, and in the process they're giving off lots of little ones. And, and the little tiny ones start sticking themselves together again and they get bigger and bigger and bigger until they go pop. And um, they haven't actually seen this in rain yet, but there are people flying around in planes as we speak looking, in, uh, looking at raindrops falling and, and through And dare sky. I ask, Dave, this is important because... It's yeah, understanding how rain works is an important thing. Rain is very important. If we understand it more, then it might help. Well, I'm going to stick with water, but going to the salty water for my second story, which is all about how all the swimming things in the oceans might actually contribute to the same amount of mixing in the oceans as all the winds and tides put together because they're swimming around and stirring up the sea. And that's all according to Kakani Katija and John Dabiri from the California Institute of Technology in Pasadena across in the States. And their study appeared this week in the journal Nature. And it could mean that uh, climate modellers have really been missing 
interesting, quite an important part of the puzzle. Now, what they got up to, these guys, was they first used computer models to look at a process in which when a body moves through a fluid, it actually pulls some of that fluid with with it. Um, And the more sticky or viscous that fluid is, the more of it's pulled along. And this was actually an idea first reported 50 years ago by Charles Darwin. No, not Charles Darwin himself, but his grandson. Uh, And, uh, well, he was a Charles Darwin, but yes, another one. And the computer model showed that even tiny plankton can pull up to four times its own volume through a water just by moving a few body lengths. Then this is the part of the research that I wish I had been involved in. They set off for Palau, a lovely um, island in the Pacific, where there are these wonderful tropical lakes um, with jellyfish in them. And they're not being crazy by jumping in with these guys because these actually have evolved to have no stings at all. And I would love to visit them. They look absolutely fantastic. And they went along there and they squirted luminous dye behind the jellyfish and filmed them with special laser-equipped underwater cameras and watched what was going on with the water. And it turned out that um, about 90% of the water movement came down to Darwin's theory about it being pulled along as these jellyfish are swimming along in the water. And the big question is, how does this translate to a global scale? Sure, what difference does it make? Why, does it, why is it important? Yeah, I mean, we, this, these guys haven't sort of specifically scaled this up yet. They're just showing that it's going on. And various researchers have wonder, are wondering at the moment, you know, will this actually make a difference? But, but theoretically, if you do think about the number and uh, the diversity of different things swimming through the ocean, um, it could well make a difference. There's actually, in nature as well this week, there's a, an oceanographer, William Dewar, writes a really interesting commentary of this study. So you can go along and have a look at that too. And he points out that actually you don't need very much energy to mix up the oceans. They're, they're not being that, mixed up that much. If you go just a little bit under the ocean surface and take a cubic kilometre of ocean to mix it up the amount that it does naturally, would only take a kitchen blender hand blender. That's the only amount of energy that the, that the waves and everything else is moving the water around. So really, maybe together all these jellyfish and plankton and everything else that's swimming, the fish that's swimming through the sea, could actually make a significant contribution by this effect of dragging water along with them. And I certainly think it's very interesting to think that life is having an effect on the world around us. Thank you, Helen. And incidentally, we've actually got some video of that footage of those jellyfish swimming with the dye being squirted behind them on our website at nakedscientist.com. So check that out if you want to have a look. Now, also in the news this week, the Babraham Institute, which is located just outside Cambridge, have opened a new laboratory. And so we sent Ben Vowsler down there to attend the opening and also find out what was going on. He's with us to tell us a bit about it now. Hello, Ben. Hello. Um, So what was this new centre all about? Well, this is the Institute's new bioscience support unit. It's cost 17 million pounds to build and a further five million pounds to equip and it contains some state-of-the-art technology including some funky robots that i was watching the babyham institute itself researches various biological mechanisms how they work how they sometimes go wrong and this gives us some insight into things like the causes of cancer the causes of heart disease and actually the way that we age as well now this sort of research underpins development of new therapies and this new bioscience support unit will not only make the research easier and more accurate and quicker but it's actually designed in such a way to be really flexible which makes the whole thing future proof and should secure that investment for a good while yet the Babyham Institute itself is funded by the BBSRC that's a biotechnology and biological sciences research council they get their money from the UK government and Lord Drayson who's the science minister was there to open the unit £22 million is a lot of investment, especially during a financial crisis like this one. But he believes that science is a priority. Science is vitally important to the UK, in part because one has to ask the question, 
Given the way in which the world's developing, given the UK's position in 2009 in that world, what are the things which the UK is going to be particularly good at? What is it we're going to earn our living in as a country? And the answer to that has to be science and the commercialisation of science in terms of innovative new products and services. We can't succeed as a nation by competing on this, if you like, the low-tech side of, of life. Our contribution has to be from those areas where the intellectual contribution, that the in-depth understanding that we have shown over the decades Britain is particularly good at is our future. So my job as science minister is to raise the profile of science, to make heroes out of scientists and science entrepreneurs, to get the general public, who sometimes see science as a bit of an elitist endeavour, something that's done by a group of brainy people but doesn't really affect them, to understand that, that we as a nation have to be both scientifically literate, because science is going to be so important to our futures, but also comfortable in discussing some of the the big issues in science. And if we can do that, we can continue being a world leader in science. And if we maintain our position as a world leader in science, we will have, I believe, a happy and prosperous society. Lord Drayson also commended the Babraham Institute for engaging local schools and the wider community, because having a future-proof research facility is only any good if we have a good supply of future scientists. He said that there's one clear way to stay competitive in science in the future continue to invest in it and maintain our focus on excellence and making sure that we're maintaining a strong pipeline of young people coming through from the schools who get excited by science at school, that science enthusiasm maintained as they're growing up, studying science at universities and coming through to be the next generation of leading scientific researchers. If you can develop a sort of scientific approach to living life, of, of noticing things and asking questions, why is that like that? Even at the most, if you like, most mundane level. I mean, the thing that's fascinating me as science minister is that when you, you get to meet really brilliant scientists, it's often something early in their life that they noticed which actually got them switched on to science. And so the more that we can get people to make that switch go on, the more likely we'll have a you know, positive pipeline of young scientists coming forward, and that's going to be very important to our success as a country. So it now seems that doing kitchen science experiments with your children is both fun and it's patriotic. That was Lord Drayson at the opening of the Babraham Institute's new bioscience support unit. It's pretty impressive. You've got to talk to him. I think that's fantastic. I was quite honoured, actually, and he was really nice. He was very down-to-earth. You, you didn't get the impression that you know he was there to see the little people at the opening or something. He was very much with us, very much supporting of what they were doing, very much supporting science in the UK. Thank you very much. That was Ben Vowsler, who went down to the Babraham Institute where they opened the new facility this week. And speaking of uh, kitchen science, as Ben mentioned there, Dave has got a great experiment that he's going to show you how to do this week here in the studio. Plus, it's backed up by a version that you can look at on our website at nakedscientist.com. Don't forget, we're taking your science questions this week. It's our science phone-in extravaganza. We'll also answer your queries on swine flu, if you have anything you'd like to talk about that. You can email us, chris at thenakedscientist.com. Keeping you abreast of the world's best science, The Naked Scientists. 
This is The Naked Scientist. It's with Chris Smith, with Dave Ansell and with Helen Scales. Don't forget you can also listen to us online, which is in Second Life. You go to the Scilands at 10 o'clock on a Sunday morning, Second Life time, 6pm UK time, and you can pick up the programme live. Right, it's the bit of the programme I love. Going to put me out of my misery. He's been going on about this nut, string and mug for three days, telling me I'm going to love it. Dave, kitchen science time. Not quite yet. You're not going to see what happens for another half hour, but say say what we're going to do. Okay, all you need for this kitchen science is a mug, a piece of string. You want it about as long as from the floor up to your shoulder, and a nut, as in a metal nut. So here I've got, actually, it's an M8 nut I got out of my garage. I'm not very familiar with M8, but I can see it's just a normal-looking nut. Something weighs sort of 5 or 10 grams, maybe. So I'm going to tie the nut onto one end of the piece of string. It doesn't have to be a nut, just something which weighs sort of 5 or 10 grams, which you can attach to a piece of string and you're not too worried about getting broken. Um, And then you just tie the mug onto the other end of the piece of string. Right. If you're worried, you don't have to use a mug. You can use something slightly less damageable. (laughs) Does it need to be heavy like a ceramic mug? You want to do something nice and heavy. Right. Um, Okay. So about the same sort of weight as a mug. Okie dokie. I'm going to hold the nut in one hand. I'm going to hold the pencil in the other hand. I'm going to put the pencil underneath the piece of string next to the mug. I'm going to stretch my arm out with the nut. I'm going to stand <laughs> up and I'm going to let go of the mug. And we're going to see what happens. So let's just, just describe the setup. Uh, yeah, so-, so currently we've got, got Dave standing in. We've got a mug in one hand tied to a piece of string. The string runs all the way to his other hand where there's a nut at the end of it on the other, other end of the string. And he's holding the pencil which is underneath the string, and you're going to let go of the mug. Yeah, one important thing is you want to hold the, point the end of the pencil upwards, otherwise the right. string can fall off the pencil, and that's, okay. that's bad. But. So, what do you think might happen? I don't know if I actually want to try this, but we'll find out. I'm intrigued, actually. <laughs> if, if you have a go at this, so let's just, just repeat that. So you tie the string onto the mug, hold the mug in, say, your right hand, and then run the string off of the handle of the mug in your right hand over a pencil also held in your right hand. So the string goes over the top of the pencil and then you go out to the right across your body, so you've got your arms outstretched, string to the other hand with a nut dangling off of it. And then you want them to just let go. Well, basically just to hold the weight of the uh, mug with the, on the, um, by, by the piece of string attached to the nut. So all the weight of the um, mug's being held by the piece of string and then let go of the nut. Wow, it's a brave man. Do we need, any, do we need any safety Radio equipment? Mug. It's a very nice <laughs> yes, mug. Better not break that. It's not even got any, any tea stains <laughs> on it. That's just quite unusual. It is unusual around here. <laughs> if you want to have a go, and or you have had a go, and you'd like to share your results, email chris at thenakedscientist.com. And don't forget, any question on anything this week goes. So get in touch with your questions as you like. We've heard from Conrad and he wants to know, can proteins ingested by a mother reach the baby in her breast milk? I think that's one for you, Chris. What do you reckon? Well, the answer answer is I was intrigued enough by this and my own observations at home to want to look this up because my wife had been saying to me many times, because we now have two small children, both were breastfed, that when she ate certain things, it seemed to make the children uh, more prone to getting a bellyache and have wind than when she other things. I said, oh, it's nonsense, it's coming on, it's breast, it's breast milk. You know, how, can that, how can that be affected by what the mum eats? So I, I've been having a poke around. And there's a paper published in 1921, W.R. Shannon, who found that proteins which are in the mother's diet can pass unchanged into breast milk. Hmm. And there's another study which was done, Kilshaw and Kant, they published this in the International Archives of Allergy and Applied Immunology in 1984, and they did a, a very thorough study. They took 29 women who were breastfeeding, they took samples of their blood and their breast milk and then gave them an egg 
and half a pint of cow's milk to drink. And then they took samples of both of those um, blood, blood and breast milk samples again at various intervals afterwards. And they measured the levels of these proteins. And they used various measures to see whether the proteins were coming through into the breast milk. And they found that after the mother ate those things, they could pick up the egg and the milk proteins intact in her bloodstream between one and two hours later and it peaked in breast milk four and six hours later so this is really interesting it shows that things that are in the mother's diet can pass unchanged through into the baby and um, and why they say that's important is because this may be a way in which the baby's immune system gets educated against the things that it will be eating in future because we know that babies when they're first born have this very plastic immune system that needs to be programmed what it has to recognize as a friend and what it needs to recognize as a foe so this perhaps is why breastfeeding is so important in helping the immune system get educated like this because the things are presented in the right context at the right time. Can't it also be a problem? I think I've heard a story about, um, in the Arctic in fact, that um, some of the Eskimo women there who eat a lot of whale meat, um, in fact their breast milk becomes what's classified as contaminated um, waste because um, some of the contaminants inside the whale meat, things like mercury that build up in those those animals um, living in the sea, comes out in her breast milk to, to the point that it can be measured and it might even be damaging to their offspring, which is just disastrous, the idea of the, the, the environment being so contaminated and getting through our own systems. And I also, isn't there also a story about um, how if you have a dram of whiskey that it calms down the, if you, as a mother... <laughs> no, this is definitely true. <laughs> it calms down um, the baby. I don't think we necessarily condone the, that. But The uh, way breast milk gets made is that there are specialised cells in the breast tissue which have a very high blood flow. The blood goes past the breast cells. The cells remove from the blood various chemicals and concentrate them in milk. So they're they're using chemicals that come out of the blood, water from the blood, and they're making milk. But anything that dissolves well in fat can move well through the blood vessel wall, through those cells, and then into the ducts that, that line the breast. So therefore, drugs and other things like alcohol can end up getting concentrated in breast milk. So women have to be a bit careful when they take certain drugs because they can concentrate in the breast milk. And what you say about people who eat a diet which may be contaminated, of course there's a risk, but you know, we didn't evolve to combat heavy metal poisoning. We evolved to give our children the best off- the best start in life. Mm-hmm. So I, I guess that kind of that's an unfortunate side effect. But the bottom line is breast is actually best oh, yeah, for absolutely. the most part. Yep. <gasps> now, Dave, a great question here from Brandon Zelinsky, who says, if you urinate on an electric fence, will it shock you? I can't see any reason why not. And as a, I grew up in a rural area, and it was one thing I was told very, very definitely not to do with such force. I have a feeling various people are telling me it had personal experience in this area. Um, yeah, and the electric fence basically works by having a wire which is put up to a thou- couple of thousand volts, but with a very, very limited current. So if the current will flow through you, but the amount of current that can flow is not going to be dangerous. Um, now, electric current will flow quite well through your body because your body's got water in it with some um, salt in there. So the salt makes the water, it's got ions in it, which means electricity can flow through it quite nicely. Urine is water with some salts in it, so electricity is going to flow through, through it quite nicely. So, yes, um, as far as I know, yes, you can certainly get a shock in that manner, yes. Is it is that true where the guy pees on, on the underground and gets a, a bit of a shock? Um, I, I don't. Would it be fatal? Is it, would would there be enough current flowing in a urine stream? Do you think to to get? I don't know. The underground is much is about six hundred volts, I think, which I would it's DC DC. <laughs> um, so I was certain. I would have thought that there would be plenty there. Again, it depends how well he's how well the, where the current can flow. If he's attached to earth quite nicely, if he's wearing rubber Wellington boots, probably less likely. And, and will the electricity flow up the urine at the speed of light? 
i.e. the speed of electricity. It should flow up the urine at about the speed of electricity, yes. So it would be an instantaneous shock. I think there's a kitchen science in this. And I, I think, think we should it, send Dave out to try. And I think we should just take it, take the take Dave's word for it that it does happen. So don't go and pee in the underground. Thank you very much. Helen got a question for you. Miguel Navarro says, "How do marine mammals control their salt intake?" Um, he says here, um, if you drink seawater, it dehydrates you because the salt in the water triggers osmosis at cellular level, etc. And, and so you have to, to get the salt out of your body, lose some water to compensate. So how do animals like marine mammals that are therefore eating a lot of salt in their diet quite naturally, how do they compensate? How do they get around that? Well, actually, they don't, as far as um, we can see, they don't actually do, they don't drink that much seawater at all. In fact, most um, whales and dolphins and things like that really don't drink uh, seawater at all. They get most of the water they need in their diet from their food because lots of fish are about 60 or 80% water and you can also get lots of water from metabolism, from oxidising fat and they have those blubbery layers and that can actually provide them with water. So half the time they actually keep their mouths shut. But of course some does get in um, when they're eating their food and so on. And sea otters apparently do drink quite a bit of seawater um, and that could possibly be because they actually eat lots of invertebrates, um, sort of sea urchins and things like that and they're quite salty and high in protein which means they create lots of urea and to process that um, salt and urea and nitrogen does take a lot of water so they do drink lots of water and um, it, one of the keys really it comes down to their kidneys they've got a very different type of kidney to uh, land most land um, animals um, in that if you look at a human kidney um, or most mammals have kind of a, a kidney-shaped kidney a sort of a single lump um, and with with various things going on inside whereas in fact um, cetaceans and uh, seals and things um, have lots of little bits to their kidneys they're very co- sort of complex structures with lobes up to sort of thousands of lobes and each one of those is an individual kidney if you like so they are actually able to concentrate um, the fluids in their urine to be stronger than seawater. So they do have that ability, but they don't necessarily do it all the time, which is actually quite surprising that they don't have, have to do that. Um, you know, they, don't, they, they actually just don't have that much salt in their system in the first place. Because one thing that um, is very often not apparent until, until perhaps you read a biochemistry book or something is that metabolism itself produces a lot of water. So when you burn sugars, you release enormous amounts of water anyway so therefore some animals are very good at using all that water so their obligatory need to drink is quite low. Absolutely and they, they think that um, when certain uh, seals and sea lions actually go through long periods when they don't eat and they're very much relying on their metabolism and their blubber at that point to provide them with enough water. Thank you, Helen. This is the Naked Scientist Science phone-in. On the way, this. Guess what? I haven't had one of those, but it's a tattoo. And we'll be finding out why it is that tattoos actually don't fade in the skin, whereas if you were to, say, mark the surface layers of your skin with a biro or something, something we all do by accident half the time, why does that fade, but actually tattoos, ink put into the skin, don't go away? Well, we'll be finding out. Also on the way, why helping to why, why squinting helps you to see more clearly, and also why chilli peppers, as they get riper and spicier, also change into that alluring red colour. Meanwhile, got a question, oh, a comment from Science Copperfield, who's listening to us in Second Life. He's had a go of your kitchen science experiment, Dave. Um, he doesn't actually say how this occurred, but he says he's broken his wife's favourite mug. Oops. Is that a, a likely risk factor? It is a risk. It shouldn't <laughs> happen if you get it right. Just remind people what you want them to do. Um, OK, you get, take a mug, you get a piece of string, which is um, about the length to your shoulder. Um, put a pencil through, um, put a pencil under the piece of string, hold the, the pencil up, sort of about a bit above your shoulder, hold the other end of the piece of string, which you tied a nut or something reasonably heavy, five or ten grams to, um, hold it up, let go of the nut, see what happens. 
Still sounds scary. Thank you, Dave. If, if you'd you'll... like to have a go, the email address for us with any science question, comments or things you want to say hello to us about here in the studio, then it's chris at thenakedscientist.com. We've heard from Kathleen, who's in Lowestoft, and she said, why is it that so many children died in Ireland from tuberculosis that their mothers had? Well, tuberculosis is a bacterial infection. It's an infection caused by Mycobacterium tuberculosis. There's also a, a, another form called Mycobacterium bovis, which is actually, as the name suggests, carried by cows, but can occasionally get into humans and people who have tb and specifically open tb in other words they're actively infected with it they have tb growing in their lungs they're infectious and these bacteria are absolutely tiny there are many of them and once a person has tb they can remain infected with it for very long periods of time and about one third of the world's population is thought to be infected so that's something in the region of two billion people on earth who've got tb and those numbers are increasing the death toll because of tb is in the thousands every single day so it's a very major disorder and it's a very common disorder because it's a very infectious disease so if you have infectious cases then you will get onward spread and it used to be a major problem until we did things like testing for it and then vaccinating we give people the bcg which is a disabled live bacterium a mycobacterium which you put into someone and this educates the immune system to help them to react to tb and this reduces the chances of you getting a serious dose of tb in the future so that's how it works helen you're listening to the naked scientist and now it's time to join laura soul who's been finding out about the latest developments in technology this month and she's been looking into the world of open source software this month in technology we're looking at open source software that is software that you are free to use, modify and redistribute yourself. At the moment, most software is proprietary, meaning it is owned by a company. You can't change it and you have to pay to use it. Recently, the alternative, open source software, has been becoming more popular. If you've used an internet browser such as Firefox or Google Chrome, then you've been using open source software. I spoke to Michael Tiemann, the president of the Open Source Initiative. The idea of open source software was born as people began to look at the way that software developed on the Internet was developed differently than software developed in proprietary commercial environments. What people found was that programmers who shared their work and who made their work easily accessible to other people, not just to download but also to read and to modify and to understand, that began to exhibit a degree of innovation and a degree of quality that was completely unpredicted by backers of the proprietary software model. So what are the advantages of using open source? The underlying architecture that was designed to be easy for others to work on was a superior way of building software than the traditional proprietary model, which was to make things complicated, to assume limited access, and to assume that only the genius in the ivory tower would ever even want to look at the code, so why make it clear? It seems that proprietary software still dominates the market. Why do you think this is? In the world of information technology, there are many companies who have been accused and many companies who have been adjudicated to be monopolists. And this power of monopoly, which is explained very well in the courts, shows that sometimes a monopoly can literally distort free market economics. They can bully the market to force the market to do what they want rather than what the market would freely choose if there were a choice. That was Michael Tiemann, president of the Open Source Initiative. There has been news recently of a new open source operating system, 
like Microsoft Windows or Mac OS, but made by Google and free to download. Don Marty, chair of the Open Source World Conference happening in San Francisco in August, told me what effect this would have on the market. Where the impact is going to be is if PC manufacturers pick up on this Google Chrome OS and start putting it on computers that people can buy at their local electronics store. If you've got a lot of Google Chrome OS being sold to end users, well, then all the companies that are out there making printers and webcams and scanners and every device that you might want to plug into a computer are going to say, well, we better get some Linux compatibility on this thing. That was Don Marty, chair of the Open Source World Conference. Microsoft is probably the most well-known proprietary software company. I spoke to Darren Strange, head of their open source engagement in the UK. There are many advantages in the proprietary model. There are things in terms of being able to take a holistic view of the whole platform, and that enables us to deliver products that are more reliable, they're more secure, and they're more consistent in many ways. Microsoft's on a really interesting journey, and I think if you look over the last 10 years, we've really shifted to being a lot more open to open source. And what we're learning is to be a lot more pragmatic about understanding that we're not competing against open source as a philosophy. That's like competing against the air. We're competing actually against products. So we might compete against Linux. We might compete against other products like OpenOffice. But in the same way, we also learn to work with those products too. And we're profoundly optimistic about how Microsoft and the open source community can grow together for the benefit of our customers. That was Darren Strange from Microsoft Open Source Engagement. Finally, Michael Tiemann explained his hopes for open source in the future. I envision a world where more and more companies in the technology world are able to run as largely or fully open source companies. I think that this idea of continuous innovation is precisely what motivates people to join the open source community. And I can tell you that it's very exciting to people when they realize that the machine that they boot, all of the source code that controls that machine is available for inspection. That was Michael Tiemann, and before that, Darren Strange and Don Marty talking to Laura Soul about news of a new open source operating system, Google Chrome OS, and how the world of open software, open source software, could change in the future. Lifting the lab coats on the world's best science, the Naked Scientists. This is The Naked Scientist with Chris Smith, with Helen Scales and with Dave Ansell. It's our science phone-in. So if you have any science questions for us, then keep them coming in. Our email address here in the studio is chris at thenakedscientist.com. We've actually just heard from Dally Waverider, who says that he's um, a trained uh, member of the fire service. And going on uh, Dave's story earlier about whether or not you should wee onto uh, electric uh, fences, he says that when no, it was whether or not you should, it was, it was what the consequences <laughs> of doing that are. Exactly. Anyway, um, but apparently in the fire service, they're trained not to direct their huge water um, cannons, their their hose pipes, at electric cables because um, it can give them a nasty shock as well, which is also quite extraordinary to think. There's no salt really in that water. Maybe a little bit of it's tap water, but very little, but lots and lots of water, I suppose, in a short amount of time. There you go. Uh, Slack Gigamon is speculating how do we actually make money out of open source. Interesting question. Don't know if anyone has any thoughts about this. Is this software, which basically companies are not charging for, they're made available freely. Um, how do they actually have a model which is going to sustain that software and make any revenue? I mean, if you, you use a lot of this stuff, Dave, in, in what you do. What, what do you think the answer is? To that? Um, there, it's hard to make as much money as you would do by selling the stuff. 
but there are various people who have models whereby they sell support for the software. So if you want it changed and customized for your thing, then they'll, they'll charge for that sort of thing. Um, but yeah, it's generally, it is a big problem. We've got a question here from Ruben, and he wants to know, could a camera flash move a piece of plastic above it? Because he says he's tried this, actually, when he was a young boy, quite a few years ago. Um, and uh, he put a, a, basically put a flash gun, it sounds, on a flat table and set up a system where he could set it off, uh, fire it off when he wanted to, put a piece of plastic on top of it. And when the flash went off, it moved. And he's saying, how could a flash and how could that, move? how could that work? Have any um, thoughts on that? I think it's perfectly feasible because a flash discharges quite a lot of energy. Um, if you take a flash gun and look at the nuts and bolts of how it works, basically what you're doing is using a circuit to charge a very big capacitor. The capacitor then discharges at a fairly high voltage, about 300 volts, through a gas tube, usually xenon is what's used, and this unleashes enormous amounts of energy very, very quickly, which is why you see this flash of light. But what that also does is to produce a lot of heat. So what I suspect is going on is that the flash goes off, this unleashes some heat, this heats the surface of the piece of plastic, plus it heats the air, separating the plastic and the flash bulb. These two things together contribute to both a change of shape of the plastic, but moreover, a change of shape of the air, it expands. This may lift up and push the plastic up off the flash a little bit, or especially if it's a light piece of plastic or a piece of paper. I mean, I did a few simple back-of-the-envelope calculations. If you look at the capacitor in a flash gun, it's about a one millifarad capacitor. It's quite a lot of capacitance. And you can calculate how much energy comes out of a capacitor by the equation E equals C, the capacitance, times V, the voltage squared over two. So if you put those numbers in with a one millifarad capacitor and you're using a voltage of about 300 volts, that's actually about 35 joules of energy. That would lift a book about 35 metres up in the air, if you think about it, because um, a book weighs about one, about one newton, I suppose, if you had a light, a small paperback. So, yeah, it's a reasonable amount of work you could get out of it. When you, do, when you do the electrodes on someone's chest to do a cardiac arrest resuscitation, that's about 300 joules. So it's uh, probably about a fifth of the amount you would use to restart someone's heart. So a reasonable amount of energy, I think. So it, it, I don't think it's unfeasible. Dave, got a question for you from Graham. He says, why does squinting help you to see more clearly? How does it work? Okay, um, the way your eye works in the first place is it has a lens at the front, a lens in the cornea that act together um, to focus light onto the back of your eye. Uh, basically, a lens is a curved piece of um, transparent material. Light goes slightly slower, slower in the lens than um, in the air. So when light hits it at an angle, it will slow down and go around a corner. A lens, a perfect lens, is shaped. Um, so as it focuses all of the light from one point outside your eye to one point on the back of your retina. Um, the problem is, as things get closer and further away, that you need to change the focus. The focus needs to change. You need to change the distance. Um, the way your eye does that is by changing the shape of your um, lens. Um, the problem comes if you're short-sighted or long-sighted, then your lens isn't the right shape for the length of your eye. And you can't adjust enough to be able to see things. Basically, this and so things look fuzzy. And but the smaller the iris, the smaller area of lens which light can get through, the um, less less it can go wrong. So the less fuzzy, the less less the errors are. So less fuzzy the images. Um, so basically, squint. The main thing that squinting does is reduces the area that light can get in through. Um, in the same way as if you go out on a sunny day, if um, things look less fuzzy because your um, iris. Sh closes down so if you squint you close down your um eye you let less you let light in through less of the lens so things look less fuzzy thank you dave very clearly explained boom, boom. 
Uh, this is The Naked Scientist with Dave Ansell, Helen Scales and Chris Smith. We're answering your science questions. We also heard from Dally Waverider who said how much water is actually produced by a human on an average day of metabolism. Well, I can uh, acknowledge a contribution from our wonderful friend, the internet here. Um, there's a book by Paul Insel and Elaine Turner and Don Ross, Discovering Nutrition. We just had a quick look in there and their stated figure is about a third of a litre per day is the amount of water that your body makes just through metabolism, just by burning sugar, because the equation is glucose, C6H12O6. If you burn that using six molecules of oxygen, plus 6O2, this goes to six molecules of carbon dioxide, 6CO2, plus 6H2O, six water molecules, and that all adds up to about a third of a litre a day, which is why you, you get some of the water that you need from actually your own metabolism. Now, something I absolutely adore, uh, Helen, is the subject of this next question. Neil Denham says, why do chilli peppers change colour when they go ripe? We're growing some chilli peppers on our windowsill. So am I, actually. My chilli plant got some fungal disease and died, though. Well, it nearly died. I managed to resuscitate it, but I had to spray something on it that is now... Um, it says do not use on things you intend to eat. So although I've saved the plant, it's now useless because I can't actually eat it. Anyway, he says, we're growing some chilli peppers on our windowsill. For ages they've been green, but suddenly they're going beautiful red and yellow colours. I understand the process why mo most plants are green, but why do the peppers turn red and yellow? What's the point of that? Excellent. Yeah, I'm growing my own chilli peppers too, failing too as well. So if you've got any tips on how to do it better, I'd love to hear from you. But, um, well, if you think about it, it's kind of... A two-sided question, really. First of all, why does any kind of fruit or anything that might be eaten um, change uh, into a bright red colour? And usually that's if it's ripe and ready to go, it's advertising itself to be eaten by a disperser. An animal of some sort is going to come along, have a nibble, eat it, take the seeds in its stomach and, and release them somewhere else um, in the faeces to help disperse this plant. So that's OK if you're a, a nice tasty thing like a tomato, they start out green and they don't want to be eaten before they're nice and ready before the seeds have actually developed enough so they will later on turn to be red and there you go, that's why they turn red. But why do chilies turn red? Do they actually want to be eaten given that they're so spicy? Do animals actually like to eat chilies? Well, there's lots of theories about why chilies evolved to have such uh, spiciness in them. It's capsaicin, is the chemical that uh, actually makes your tongue burn when you have a mouthful of chilli and I love it as well. And there's a, um, a guy called Josh Chutesbury, a scientist in the University of Washington who spent a lot of his time um, looking into this question of how spicy chilies evolved, why they evolved, what's the purpose of them. He's been out into the Bolivian and Peruvian jungles where we think, well sorry, the rainforest, the dry mountainous areas actually, not rainforest, um, where we think these chilies first evolved and he's found some really interesting things out. We think that it could actually be that mammals are no good at eating chilies um, because they actually crunch them up their seed predators. So that's not much use to the chilli plant because their seeds get destroyed that way but maybe birds are the ones that the chilies are trying to attract because birds usually just swallow down the seeds whole um, and they don't actually get affected by the chilli and they've watched to see there's, there are natural um, variations in the amount of um, capsaicin you get in plants within one population of chilies. and if you look, they went out and looked and they saw that mammals don't like to eat the ones where there's lots of um, chilli, uh, capsaicin in the plants but birds don't mind, they will just go for any of them. I think they actually lack the receptor that the capsaicin right. locks onto on the nerve fibres There you go. So they can't Detect it. That so, as well. Because one, one suggestion we did have for people who um, keep chickens and are fed up with rats eating the chicken food is that you put loads of curry powder in with the chicken food and the chickens don't notice the curry powder because they're insensitive to the effect of the go. capsaicin. Mm. But the rats do. And, and the other benefit of that is that you get a sort of pre-marinated chicken. So when you come to eat it, it's already nice and curry. Fine. Super, super. But it also could be that it deters fungal attack and that, in fact, um, having more capsaicin in, in the chilli plants uh, in their seeds helps to avoid um, fungus coming along and, um, and destroying the seeds. So maybe it's attracting birds and that's why chilli 
Hercules are red, um, Pat the Cabean. We've been doing it for an awfully long time. At least 6,000 BC, we think, that the chilies were being cultivated. With good reason. They're fantastically Fantastic tasty. Stuff. Thank you, Helen. Adrian says, Dave, should I, how should I align my laundry with the wind? He says, as I live in the UK, I need to use the dry weather as cleverly as possible for drying my laundry because there ain't much of this dry weather around. If the wind blows from west to east, would it be better to place the rope for the laundry north-south or would it be better to do west to east so the wind would dissipate the water vapours from both sides of the clothing? What's your theory? I would have said you probably want it across the wind because if um, the wind's running along your laundry, then any moisture evaporates at the the front end of the laundry is then going to reduce the evaporation further on. Um, And if you're going across it, then you're going to get lots of uh, turbulence, which um, so the air will get to the back fine because it will just go over the top and swirl in the back. So, but if anyone has any ideas, then I'd love to hear them. Yes, I'd suggest using a tumble dryer inside, which uh, (laughs) is guaranteed to work, unlike the washing line in this country. Oh, Chris, how about the sunshine? Come on, think of the environment. (laughs) I hang my washing outside in between the rain showers. This is The Naked Scientist with Chris Smith, Dave Ansell and Helen Scales. If you have some science questions for us, then it's chris at thenakedscientist.com. Coming up, Dave's wonderful kitchen science slash mug slashing, splashing, smashing, a bit of a rhyming going on there, uh, experiment for you. Plus, uh, we'll also be finding out why tattoos don't disappear over a lifetime or do to a lesser or greater extent. Um, quick question from Kathleen who says, how come we suddenly have this new medication, Tamiflu, for swine flu so quickly? Where did this come from? Um, well, the answer is we've actually had Tamiflu, Ocel Tamivir, and is, there's another version of that which uh, works in the same way but is made by a rival company, and that's called Relenza, uh, Zanamivir. And these agents were quite carefully designed. They were a process of what's called rational drug design, actually. What they do is to target a particle on the surface of a flu virus, which is called the neuraminidase. And this is an enzyme that sits on the surface of the virus and it, it behaves a bit like a machete. And when a virus infects a cell, it tries to bud off or get away from the cell that it's grown in. And in order to do that, it needs to make sure that it doesn't get stuck onto the surface of the cell and also get stuck in any of the mucus, which is on the lining of the airway. And this enzyme cuts the virus adrift and helps it to get free. And the way Tamiflu works is by blocking up that enzyme so the virus can't escape from the cell that it's been growing in. And this means that it finds it much harder to spread to other cells. And this effectively confines the virus to barracks. And so the the infection progresses much more slowly it doesn't infect so many other people it doesn't infect so many other cells in the same person and therefore the immune system has a better opportunity to try and curtail the infection a little bit uh, right i've got a question here for you dave which is on rainbows we've had some wonderful rainbows because we've had some wonderfully heavy rain rosemary gant says um, what determines the actual shape of a rainbow she said she watched one the other night and it was almost flat along the horizon Okay, um, the rainbow is actually always the same shape. It's always a circle. Um, the way a rainbow is formed is that when light goes into a raindrop, um, it kind of reflects around the back, and as it come, as it goes in and goes out, it refracts. I mean, it bends because light goes slower in water than it does in air. Um, different colours b- refract slightly different amounts, so the light that comes out of the raindrop... Um, in different directions it's slightly different colours so if you look at the raindrop from a certain different directions it looks different colours if you have a whole sky full of raindrops and uh, different angles are different colours so if you look in different places are different colours um, this angle is fixed uh, it's about 40, 42 degrees across the whole rainbow the reason why it's flat and some, well, sometimes it's flat and sometimes other is it's always exactly opposite the sun so if the sun is um, very is high in the sky then the rainbow is going to be very low if the sun is very low in the sky then the rainbow is going to be higher up that makes sense and when you see a second rainbow 
that's presumably where it's gone into the raindrop, bounced off the front of the raindrop, gone to the back again and come out the front. So it's done sort of two journeys, and that's why you get a second rainbow around the first. Is it, that right? It's doing more, yeah, doing more exciting things inside the rainbow. Yeah, inside. Right, come on then, put us out of our misery with this kitchen science experiment. Okay, so I have the mug. Um, I'm gonna ha- I've got a pencil which is going to be going slightly above horizontal, um, which the mug is now hanging off. Should I stand back at this point? I'm going to stand back because <laughs> I've got space to do it in. Well, um, getting a bit tangled up with his <laughs> headphones there. Whoops, hang on, there we go. OK, so I'm stretching the string out, and so I'm taking the weight of the mug on, my, on the string. I'm just going to let go of the nut. We'll hope, see what see happens. See what happens. Aha! Oh no, no broken <laughs> mug. Fantastic. OK, that worked, right, because the mug... And we'll just explain what happened. The mug began to drop off of the the pencil and as it was taking up the string coming from the other hand with the nut on it, the nut got close to the end and then began to wind its way around the pencil, forming an anchor which arrested the mug as it fell. But if you'd held that closer to the ground, would it have actually stopped before the mug hit the ground? You do you do want to hold it slightly above the length of the string to be safe, yes. Stand on a chair. Now you tell us. (laughs) Well, I, I, I hold it. I said, hold it up. <laughs> okay, yeah, hold it up above you, above the length of the string. It's a great party trick. That I would not have guessed that was going to happen. I thought it was just going to sort of swing aimlessly back and forth. There was some funny thing. In it. I didn't realise that would happen. That was really quite impressive. Okay, what's going? Yeah, I love it. <laughs> it still worries me when I do it, but it is good. Um, what's going on is as you drop it, um, there's two things pulling the nut. The nut's going to get pulled in towards the pencil it's also dropping under gravity because it's dropping under gravity it starts to rotate around the pencil and as it as a uh, mug pulls it in the strength getting shorter and shorter and shorter it's a bit like if you um if you got a ice skater as they move their weight in towards the middle they spin faster and faster and faster so as the string gets shorter and shorter and the nut gets closer and closer to the pencil it spins faster and faster and faster so it keeps spinning round and round and round the pencil um, until eventually it can spin round enough in order to produce enough friction to stop the mug and you have some beautiful wacky pictures of this people look at on yeah, the web. i've got some lovely high speed footage of it on the web fantastic so do have a go and if you manage to make it work send in some pictures of yourself making it work as well Right, it's time for this week's Question of the Week with Diana O'Carroll. Welcome, Diana. Hello, hello. How is everybody? Right, well, this week I've been checking out body art to answer this question. This is Bruce Rogers of Milpitas, California. I've always wondered why tattoos didn't disappear over the years. So, what is it that keeps tattoos in their place? Hi, I'm Neil Walker. I'm a consultant dermatologist in Oxford. Tattoos, by definition, are permanent marks produced on the skin by the injection of material by a puncture wound. As a dermatologist, I see a variety of tattoos, not only those which have been applied by a so-called tattoo artist, either a professional or amateur, sober or drunk. Occasionally, I see people who've had a black henna tattoo where a dye called PPD is used, which can cause nasty skin reactions. A properly applied henna tattoo is not a tattoo at all. Rather, it's a dyeing process using the paste to produce a design in the dead outer layers of the skin. The design fades as the skin regenerates, and that is one of the clues as to why tattoos applied by puncture wounds are permanent. Our skin is continually regenerating as the outer layers or epidermis grow from basal cells at the bottom to dead horny layer at the top over a period of six to eight weeks. Pigments implanted beneath the growing layer are in the dermis or supporting layer of the skin and are not removed by the natural process of skin turnover. The body recognises pigment granules as foreign material 
And there are cells whose function is to remove such material by engulfing them and transporting it to the lymph glands. These cells are unable to engulf pigment granules over a certain size, and therefore the body seems to surround them at a microscopic level by a thin layer of fibrous or scar tissue, and they become permanently trapped in the dermis. The removal process continues slowly, and tattoos may fade to a degree over time, with different colours fading at different rates, depending on the particle size of the pigment. In summary, tattoos are permanent because the pigment particles are injected under the growing layer of the skin and the body's mechanisms for dealing with foreign materials can't remove the particles over a certain size. So size is important, Diana. Yes, basically. Tattoos stay in the skin because they are held at a deeper level by what is effectively scar tissue. And tattoos are not new. So uh, just to throw a bit of archaeology in there, the 5,000-year-old Iceman Ertzi famously has 57 carbon or soot tattoos spread about his body. There's evidence the Egyptians were being tattooed 4,000 years ago, the pre-Inca civilizations 1,500 years ago, the Romans and the Greeks did it, and there are some hints that the Vikings and Aztecs were at it too. So, with a long history of tattooing, here's something else with a deep past. Hi, my name is Mike. I'm from Oregon in the United States. I realize that animals have a very sophisticated immune system, T-cells, lymph nodes, etc. But I've often wondered how plants protect themselves from bacteria and viruses. Thank you. So what do you guys think? Do plants have an immunity to pathogens? It's a brilliant question, actually, isn't it? Because we just take for granted the fact that our immune system has to ward things off. I guess plants produce all sorts of really nasty, vicious chemicals for killing things, so that could be part of it. Well, they can also commit suicide, can't they? Plant cells can undergo apoptosis. They kill their own cells. So I guess a, a one way of protecting themselves is if they detect a virus or something in a cell, they just kill that cell or group of cells, and that would wall it off. You think? I don't know. Maybe there's something that's ancient enough that we share with plants that animals and plants have brought from a very ancient ancestor in terms of their immunity. I don't know. I guess we'll find out next week. Thank you very much, Diana O'Carroll, with this week's question of the week. So, if you can help us with how do plants ward off microbial attack from viruses, bacteria, and funguses and things, then do drop us a line, Chris at thenakedscientist.com, or you can join in the debate that everyone's having about it on our forum. You go to nakedscientist.com forward slash forum, and you'll find there's a whole board there about question of the week where you can put your thoughts. And uh, incidentally, Question of the Week is also available as a podcast in its own right, and that's at nakedscientist.com forward slash QOTW, or you can find it on iTunes. Just before we finish, uh, Judith in Northampton said that when you're talking about capsaicin powder, which can be used to stop things eating your chicken food, she uses the same trick to stop the squirrels nicking her bird feed. And also Dom says, what does spray paint contain that makes it burn so well? Well, the answer is, Dom, two things. One is the propellant, the stuff that makes the paint come out of the tin in the first place. That's usually a gas like butane or propane. Those are the common propellants, also used in deodorant, which is why deodorants are so flammable. Uh, the other thing that the spray paints contain is that the paint molecules themselves are hydrocarbon-based, and so they're very flammable. And there's methanol in there too. Well, that's all we've got time for this week. We have run out of time. So I have to say a very big thank you to Michael Tiemann, Darren Strange and Don Marty, who talked to Laura about her open source software, and also to Lord Drayson, who chatted with Ben earlier this week. Thank you also to our production team, Diana O'Carroll, Laura Sol, Tom Simpkins, Ben Valsler. And finally, thank you to everyone for listening to us at home. We couldn't do it without you. Next week, Dr Cat will be here with a special Naked Science. And after her, across the summer, we'll also be joined by various members of the Naked Scientist team who will be bringing us up to date with their favourite bits from the past 12 months. Plus, you'll also get your chance to hear Ben dancing very badly in the studio again. 
If you'd like to hear any of these programmes that we've produced this year over again to catch up on any of them, they're all on our website and available as a podcast. You can find out more at nakedscientist.com forward slash podcast. In the meantime, have a great few weeks and I'll be back with you in September. See you soon and thanks for listening once again. Goodbye. The Naked Scientist podcast comes to you from Cambridge University and is supported by the Wellcome Trust, the EPSRC and UK Fast. For more information, look us up online at nakedscientist.com. Oh,